Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3 as we come back to our study of this great, great gospel this morning. I don't know if you've ever heard of a footman. I heard someone use that term again this week, and for those of us who are man enough to admit that we watched Downton Abbey, I remember hearing that term and wondering what a footman was. I knew a butler, and I I understood other things. I was kind of curious after hearing it again this week to look it up and and, uh, figure out what exactly that was. And the word came actually to refer to a household servant who would stand at the table or stand at meals to remove dishes and to fill glasses while the master of the house and his guests would eat. That was a footman. But originally, it was someone who ran, or sometimes they were called running footmen. They were people who ran beside the carriages of the wealthy. They ran alongside the coach to make sure that it wasn't going to hit some sort of uh, rock or stump on, as you might imagine, uh, sort of primitive and undeveloped roads. They would run alongside to make sure that the carriage would not be tipped over by falling into a rut or a ditch or something like that. And many times they would actually run ahead of the carriage to make sure that the road was properly cleared and prepared. And eventually it became the custom for them to actually arrive a day or two earlier than the, uh, than the nobility would come and to make sure that all of the accommodations and the preparations and everything was, was in order before the arrival of their master. You can still see that uh, somewhat today if you ever watch images of the Queen of England going to formal ceremonies in her carriage, she will have two footmen standing on the back of the carriage. And these footmen are dressed in the sort of traditional garb, typically with their traditional footmen's dress stockings, which were designed specifically to show off their well-toned legs because this was their primary uh, qualification to have to be fit enough to be able to run alongside of a carriage. Well, today we introduce Matthew's text with a kind of a footman to the Lord, a man whose job it was to go ahead, to to go ahead of the Lord to prepare the way. His name is John the Baptist, and he has no fancy garb, But he's doing a very similar kind of a task. He's the one whom the Lord called to a very, very special task and very special role of preparing the Lord's way. It's interesting as you think about it that the Lord would need someone to prepare the way. God is obviously the sovereign over all the universe. He does sit in the heavens and does whatever he pleases as the scripture tells us. He controls everything. He made the mountains and the seas and all that are contained in them. He created the dirt out of which the earth is made. He he has control over everything in the universe. You wouldn't normally think of God needing anyone to go before him or prepare anything for him, but this is exactly what John's role was. This is his job description. He was sent in order to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, it begs the question, how exactly does someone prepare the way of the Lord? Jesus didn't come riding in some royal carriage. He didn't come on some, um, you know, golden pathway. 
What exactly is this all about? How do you prepare the way for God? What does it mean to prepare the way for Him? How does one need to do that? What do you need to do? What is helpful? What is necessary in preparing God's way? Well, John is given the special task, and he does it here, and Matthew tells us really what it is, how he prepared the Lord's way in a unique way, in a special way, unlike anyone else. But as we'll see as we move through this passage, what John did in the way that he prepared the way isn't unique. The way he did it, the manner, the style were somewhat unique. The timing of it was somewhat unique. But his his, 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 his methodology, if you will, his message even, is not unique. The way you prepare a heart for the Lord, the way you prepare your heart, the way you prepare the hearts of other people is really no different today, no different for you, no different for me than it was for John. As a matter of fact, John's ministry of preparation is extended beyond him to the apostles, to the early church, to you and to me. You and I have a calling on our life to prepare people's hearts in the same way that John the Baptist did, as we will see. Jesus' disciples, they were preparers. You and I are preparers. You and I are instructed with the same kind of language that John the Baptist has. So how do you do that? How do you prepare someone for the Lord? How do you prepare their heart for the Lord? Well, we could begin just by taking note of John's ministry. And, and I'll read for you the first 12 verses of this chapter. We won't have time to get into all of them this week, but I think it's helpful to just kind of frame up the entire context here. He, uh, Matthew tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of uh, camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit. In keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to, to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not uh, worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff 
He will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, by the way, was the greatest man who had ever lived in Jesus' estimation. Later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 11, verse 10, he says, uh, speaking of John the Baptist, this is he of whom is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is the greatest man. This is the greatest preacher in Jesus's estimation. No one, no prophet, uh, no king, no biblical writer, no one, not Moses, not Abraham, no one was greater than John the Baptist. He was, we might say, Jesus' favorite preacher, doing the work of preparing the way. Now, how was he doing that? John came to remind people to call them back to a true relationship with God, to a true understanding of God's grace, to a true understanding of the gospel. And while he had a unique role in relationship to the Messiah, he was just in a natural sense, he was the cousin of Jesus Christ. He preceded the Messiah immediately. His message was to call people back to a right relationship with God, but his message wasn't unique. His message was simply the same message that had been repeated by the prophets in the Old Testament who again and again and again called Israel to turn. The, the, the Hebrew word is shuv. They over and over and over again called on Israel to turn back to the Lord, to turn to the Lord. So it was the same message of all the prophets through all the ages, which is important for us to grasp but it's also the same message that runs throughout the New Testament, which is also important for us to grasp so that you don't follow the popular models of ministry today that have forgotten preachers like John and forgotten the message of John, who have forgotten their duty to call people, to prepare people so that God would enter into their life so that we don't forget these kinds of preachers and these kinds of messages and the, and the way that God esteems them and thinks of them. It's so important for us to grasp that this is exactly the, the preparatory work that you and I have. And John's message is clear in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Down in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or verse 11, I baptize you with the water for repentance. Mark 1 says, John appeared proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 3 summarizes John's message as repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And everyone seems very clear about what John's message was and what characterizes his message, what his primary point was. Everyone was clear about exactly the way that John was preparing people. He came preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He came preaching that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under the, the, the judgment of God. They're outside the kingdom. And if they repented and put their trust in the Messiah, God would forgive them. He would grant them entrance into the kingdom. If they repented and if they trusted in Christ, God would save them. And this, as we'll see, 
was the exact same message of Jesus. It was the exact same message of the apostles. And it was the exact same message that you and I commanded to preach. You and I are commissioned to preach. Now, this is so important. This is so foundational to what you and I are supposed to do. It's so foundational to Matthew's whole gospel and so foundational to Jesus Christ that we need to slow down and and take a long time to consider these things. And along the way, we'll see in the next uh, few weeks, we'll come to understand not only how John was unique, but also how he's a model for you. We'll come to understand why the Lord esteemed him so highly, but also exactly how the Lord used him to prepare people's hearts for the kingdom or for salvation. And it'll help you and I to understand how we need to prepare people's hearts if they want to enter into the kingdom. Now, In this passage, Matthew gives us, I think, seven unique features of John's ministries that help us understand how the Lord used him in this preparation work. The first one is probably the most unique of John's ministry, and that's the place where he preached. The place where he preached. John's place of ministry was, very simply, the wilderness. He was preaching in the wilderness. Matthew, by the way, doesn't give us any indication of the time. He just says in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. We, we know the time only because Luke tells us that this was in the 15th year of Tiberius the Caesar. And Tiberius started to reign in 14 AD. And so if you add 15 years to 14, obviously you come up with 29 AD. And so this is when John began his ministry in the year 29. As a matter of fact, the uh, early church fathers tell us that Jesus was born 15 years before Tiberius uh, began to reign in 1 BC. And so uh, as Luke goes on to tell us, Jesus was about 30 years old when all these events were taking place. But here comes John in 29 AD, and he begins his ministry out in the wilderness. And we can't just pass over that word, because those who originally read Matthew's gospel would not have just passed over the word. They would have understood what it meant with all of its implications. The wilderness was significant to them. And even for us, we need to make sure that we're not thinking about this incorrectly as we often refer to the wilderness as a, a sort of a, a lonely place, maybe out in the middle of the forest where there's a bunch of trees. But the wilderness for all of those living in Palestine was the desert. It was the dry place. It was the barren place. As a matter of fact, it was the place of the steep hills and cliffs that dropped off as you fell, if you will, into or descended down into the Great Rift Valley in which sat the Dead Sea and the Jordan River and even the Sea of Galilee. This was the wilderness, and Matthew's readers would have recognized it for exactly what it was. Now, there were a couple reasons why Matthew tells us this, a couple reasons why John was preaching in the wilderness. The first one, we might say, is just simply practical. It was the environment that surrounded the Jordan River. And as John 3.23 tells us, 
John the Baptist was baptizing in Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. Like every other person who baptized, John was baptizing people by immersion. And so he couldn't just uh, take a bucket of water and sprinkle some water or pour water over some people. He had to find somewhere that had an ample amount of water so that he could actually immerse them. And so he went to the Jordan River, John tells us. Not only that, but he tells us specifically he went to Anon, which is about midway up between the Dead Sea and, uh, and south from the Sea of Galilee, very close to the ancient Roman city of Scythopolis. It was about 30 miles southeast of Nazareth and about 50 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So practically, it was a place that had plenty of water, but at the same time, it was not the most accessible place. People would have had to travel and it would have taken them multiple days to walk 50 miles or even 30 miles coming from Nazareth in the case of Jesus. It would have taken them multiple days. They would have had to walk and sleep out under the stars and walk some more and probably sleep again before they finally made it to John's location. Which brings us to a second reason behind John's preaching in the wilderness, which is not just practical, but social. It was social. John positioned himself in such a way that no superficial, shallow person was going to wander by and want to be baptized by him. It had to be intentional. He didn't put himself in the most easy access point. He didn't position himself in the most central city or even the most central plaza in the city. Not that anything's wrong with that. Jesus himself uh, preached often in the key cities around the Sea of Galilee, around Judea and Jerusalem, and obviously in the temple. But the least you can say is that John wasn't driven by any personal desire for acclaim or by a strategy for personal advancement. He didn't position himself in society so that he could be central to its uh, discourse and central to its marketplace. He seemed, at least in his ministry, unconcerned with any of that. His motivation was in ministry was not to place himself in the spotlight. As he will go on to say later on that his desire throughout all of his ministry was so that he could decrease and Christ could increase. It was never about him. It was never about what ministry could gain for him. It was never about how he could find ease and comfort. It was never about any of those things for John. So the wilderness sort of represented not only his own personal standing, but it also represented the demand of the gospel. People had to travel. People had to sacrifice. People had to go out of their way if they were going to hear the preaching of John the Baptist. Which, I guess, sort of leads us to the third element of this wilderness ministry, which is its theological significance. Its theological significance. It carried with it some theological 
messaging, which came straight out of the Old Testament, as we'll see down in verse 3. A part of the prophecy of John was this theological background within Israel. The wilderness was the place that God so often said he would find Israel, where he would meet Israel. The wilderness was so often synonymous with barrenness. Nothing grew there. There was no vegetation. There wasn't anything often to eat. There wasn't fruit there. And consequently, it became a symbol for so many of the Old Testament prophets as they spoke about Israel. It became a symbol for Israel's spiritual life. It became a symbol of where they were in their spiritual deadness and their spiritual dryness and their lack of fruitfulness. It, it was all pictured in the wilderness, whether it was the wilderness of Judea or the wilderness of Sinai, didn't really matter. The wilderness as a, as a motif, the, the wilderness as a scene became the backdrop through which God gave so many of his promises to Israel. And particularly in the book of Isaiah, when God gave a message to the prophet about a coming day of restoration, he spoke about a work that would come in the wilderness. This is the place where Matthew quotes from in verse 3 to describe John's ministry. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be filled up, every mountain and hill made low, even The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Later on in Isaiah 51, Isaiah says, For the Lord comforts Zion, He comforts her in her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of God. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. So Israel's spiritual barrenness is going to be made as fruitful as Eden. Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are anxious in heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God comes with vengeance, with recompense. He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, and burning sand shall become a pool The thirsty ground, springs of water, in the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass will become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness, the way of holiness. Isaiah 41, when the poor and needy seek water and there's none, their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsaken them. I will open rivers in the bare heights, fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make a wilderness, the wilderness, a pool of water, the dry land, springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. 
I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. So the Lord is saying over and over again, I'm going to take this wilderness and I'm going to make it spring with new life. I'm going to make it spring with water. I'm going to bring parched lands to be pools of water. And many of these things are going to take place one day in Israel, literally. The land is literally going to be transformed. God will make it a land that is fruitful. But at the same time, God used this same work that He's going to do to spiritually or symbolize spiritually what He was going to do in Israel first. Just like when He brought them out of of Egypt by way of the Exodus, literally, that literal movement from them out of Egypt into the promised land became a spiritual symbol of what God wanted to do in their hearts. And so he's talking about their wilderness becoming a, a, um, a place full of fruitful trees and planted trees and an abundance. When he's saying all of that, he's not only giving prophecy about the future, but he's talking about their spiritual dryness, their spiritual deadness. He's talking about their lack of holiness. And so for an Israelite to hear of a prophet in the wilderness preaching in the wilderness. And they take the trek and the journey down the crags and the rocks and over the cliffs down to hear hear this prophet. It would have accentuated in their minds this message from the prophets about their spiritual barrenness. So Matthew introduces John's ministry to us in this way, simply by this this unique location, preaching in the wilderness with all of its spiritual symbolism. But then, very quickly, he tells us in verse 2, the preparation that John called for. Immediately, he summarizes John's preaching and his preparation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, with those very brief words, he captures two central elements in John's ministry. Repentance and the kingdom. Repentance and the kingdom. And this, as I said earlier, is the key to understanding John's ministry. It's the key to understanding how he prepared hearts and how Jesus prepared hearts and how the apostles prepared hearts when they preached. It was all about the kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven Or, as Matthew says it in other places, the kingdom of God. There's not really a distinction between those two things. Matthew uses them interchangeably. You can see it probably most clearly in Matthew 19. Over in Matthew 19, verse 23, where Jesus is talking about a rich man entering the kingdom. And he says in Matthew 19, 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are essentially the same thing in Matthew's perspective and in Jesus' preaching and John's preaching. So whether you read those as kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, it's talking about the same thing. And all the Jewish 
listeners would have understood what he's talking about. He's talking about the kingdom that was promised to Israel in the Old Testament. He's talking about the kingdom that was promised to David in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, when God told David, your kingdom will be made a sure kingdom forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. So God makes that promise to David in the middle of the of the, the 10th century BC. And 400 years later, even after many disappointments and rebellions from Israel, God having carried them away into captivity, God having rebuked them over and over and over again, he still holds out hope of a kingdom. And Daniel, in Daniel 2.44, reiterates, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor shall any other kingdom be left to another people. This will be the only kingdom, the supreme kingdom. And, of course, many, many prophets who came after Daniel kept reiterating the promise of this kingdom. So when John shows up and starts talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the Jews understood exactly what he's talking about. In fact, a... The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they all mention the kingdom. They all mention the preaching of the kingdom. What's unique to Matthew, however, that's unlike any of the other gospel writers, is that he interchanges these two words, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. It's the same kingdom, but different emphases. Different emphases. Because the kingdom, of, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God's going to establish, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom He's going to establish, is going to be a kingdom that is not from this world. And Matthew uses this language, the kingdom of heaven, to stress that fact. This isn't a kingdom that arises out of the power structures of the world. It will eventually take up an earthly manifestation. It will eventually result in Jesus ruling from his throne in Jerusalem. It will be an earthly kingdom that's established just as he promised when he comes. But even though its final manifestation is visible and physical over all the earth... The power structure out of which it arises is not like that of other kingdoms. It doesn't come, you might say, from the same place other kingdoms come from. It's not, in other words, a kingdom of men. It's a kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom whose source and authority arise from above, not from below. It's a kingdom whose very nature is like the nature of heaven. It's a kingdom that isn't filled with sinful corruption. It's not filled with with weak and temporary rulers. It's not filled with injustice. It's not filled with inequity. It's not filled with need. It's not filled with, with violence and hatred. It's not filled with any of the stuff that characterizes a worldly kingdom. It's a kingdom from heaven, a kingdom that's filled with righteousness, a kingdom that's filled with truth, a kingdom that's filled with strength strength, a kingdom that endures forever. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 makes a similar kind of contrast between the preaching of false teachers and his own preaching. He says at the end of Philippians chapter 3 in verse 19, 
Speaking about these false teachers, he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into the image of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to himself. So Paul says, this is us. We don't set our mind on earthly things. We're not governed by earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. We set our mind on things of heaven and we await a final transformation which will align our outward bodies with the inward realities of what's already taken place with us. We await the arrival of our Savior who's going to take this heavenly citizenship within us and He's going to manifest it on the outside. Well, that's very similar to the way that the kingdom operates. You remember Jesus told Pilate in John eighteen thirty six, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that, it might, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. This is, this is what Matthew is getting at. When John came preaching, this is what John is getting at. He's preaching a kingdom that is focused not on some earthly things like other kingdoms are focused on. It's focused on heavenly things. This is a kingdom of heaven. And while it isn't outwardly manifested on the earth at this point, one day it will be, but John came to prepare people to enter into the kingdom even now. A kingdom, a kingdom that's going to overtake all kingdoms, a kingdom that will be over all the world, a kingdom that will be under the reign of the king. It was the kingdom that was spoken about, all Jews would have understood, but unfortunately it wasn't the kingdom most of them were looking for. They wanted a kingdom, they believed that had been promised to them, but they wanted it in the same sinful, selfish, greedy, corrupt way that every other kingdom was established. They all believed in the promise of the kingdom, but they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. They all believed in the promise, they just misunderstood the nature. And so John came preaching the kingdom. By the way, over in John, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus also preached the kingdom. It says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even over in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 7 Jesus sends out his disciples to preach. He sent out, we read, the 12 instructing them, go and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Over in Luke 10 verse 9, Jesus sends out 72 disciples and he gives them the same message, preach that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you fast forward even Two decades later, long after the crucifixion, long after the burial and resurrection, long after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and long after the birth of the church, and you go all the way to the very end of the book of Acts in Acts 28, 
And we read that Paul was preaching to people in the Rome, uh, Roman capital, the, the capital of the Roman Empire. He, he was a prisoner. And we read in Acts 28, verse 23, people came to him at his, his lodging. He was under house arrest. People came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. And he expounded to them, testifying to them the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. Verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you, this is Paul's words, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. John's message of the kingdom is the message of Jesus, it's the message of the apostles, it's the message of the disciples, it's the message of you and me. The kingdom of God. This was the message of the early church. The message of God's kingdom then was, you might say, it was the clothing through which the apostolic church presented the gospel. It was the cup through which they invited people to drink the message of the gospel. It was the message of God's rule and God's reign. It was the message of God's fulfilled promise to the Davidic king. Now you need to understand this kingdom then. Because it came, as Jesus will tell us a little bit later in Matthew 13 with a series of parables, it came as a kind of mystery. It came with outward elements and inward elements. It has both outward manifestations and inward realities. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand John's preaching, Jesus' preaching, the disciples' preaching, or really even the gospel itself. Israel was hoping for a kingdom that was promised to them, but they wanted a kingdom like the world. They wanted an earthly kingdom. They didn't want a heavenly kingdom like so many people who, who are open to religion, but they want an earthly religion. They don't want a heavenly religion. They want a church. They want a form of worship. They want a, a, a form of ritual, but they want it made after the world so they can hold on to the world and be like the world. They don't want a heavenly version. Well, in the same way, this kingdom was a heavenly kingdom, and they needed to understand that. Because a part of the promise of the Old Testament involved these inward elements. It was a kingdom that would spread over all the earth. It was a kingdom that would cover the world with righteousness like the waters cover the sea. It was a kingdom that would have cessation of hostilities and wars and abundance of prosperity and the removal of all abuse and corruption and injustice. It was going to have a Messiah who was glorified over all the nations and over all rulers. But this outward kingdom that's spoken about when Jesus was even preaching himself, when he speaks about the kingdom, all of that was still in the future. He tells his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This isn't a kingdom that's here right now. This is the kingdom we're still waiting for. Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... 
and all of his angels, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is all something that's awaiting a future arrival, this external outward manifestation of the kingdom. But at the same time, over and over again, there are these inward manifestations that are a present reality that John and Jesus and others are inviting you to. Jesus says it this way in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. That is John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. This is part and parcel of the gospel message. Meaning that previously God prescribed the way that you relate to Him through faith by means of the law and the sacrifices. But since John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom of God is the central thrust of our message. And so we relate to him in this new reality, this brand new work, which was inaugurated through the new covenant that Jesus established. Now, you don't need to even get into all of that doctrinal detail, which really just skims the surface. All you really need is the simple message that was preached. For example, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, excuse me. It just takes poverty of spirit. Or in Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable explaining the kingdom as a sower who goes out and casts seeds on the ground in his field. And in that parable... He contrasts those who hear the word of the kingdom and do not understand versus the seed which he says was sown on the good soil. It's the one who hears the word and understands it. Indeed, it bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. The message of the kingdom is simply the receiving of the word. In Matthew 6.31, don't be anxious for anything, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the kingdom is something that awaits an outward manifestation. It's something we're to pray for to come one day with the arrival of Jesus. But at the same time, it's something that you and I seek right now. It is, as Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is, Jay, this is John's message, you see. He wants to prepare people for the outer kingdom by preparing them with the inner kingdom. He wants to make sure that when the kingdom arrives that they're kingdom citizens. He wants to make sure that before that outward expression of the kingdom ever comes with the return of Christ, he wants people to understand that if you are not a part of the kingdom now, you will not enter the kingdom then. And by the way, when Jesus returns in his outer kingdom, if you're not a part of his kingdom, there's only one other option, that is to be cast out into outer darkness. Matthew 
chapter 8, Jesus warns the Jews, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Isaac and Abraham and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While you, that is Jews who mistakenly think that you're already in the kingdom, you will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25 Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels, and He sits upon His glorious throne, before Him He will gather all the nations, and He'll separate the people one from another. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." There is no third option. You either enter His kingdom or you face judgment. You enter His kingdom or you cast into outer darkness. So to enter His kingdom, you've got to be prepared. To enter that outer kingdom, you've got to be prepared. You have to prepare the way, if you will, for the king. And this is, what, this is what John is doing. And how do you do that? Repentance. That's what John says, repentance. It's simple. If you have any hope of ever entering the future, outward, physical kingdom when Jesus comes again, if you have any hope of not being cast into outer darkness, if you have any hope of being in the reign and the blessing of the King. You have to repent. Because in order to enter Jesus' kingdom, you have to be willing to bow to the king. You have to bow your heart and your mind to the king. And this is what repentance is. Repentance, the word is metanoia. It's literally a transformation of your mind. A transformation of your mind. Or we might say a transformation of your inner person. Your whole inner person. All that's inside of you, including all your thoughts, including your attitudes, including your will, including your choices. All of those have to be transformed. You can't just dress yourself with outward religion. You can't just seek an outward kingdom. If you want to enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ when He comes, you have got to be transformed in your inner person. All of your attitudes, all of your thoughts, all of your will. That's repentance. A total transformation, which as John says down in verse 8, will yield certain outward fruits. You don't just mouth the words. You demonstrate the reality that you've been changed on the inside because it it manifests itself on the outside. See, Israel thought that they were automatically citizens of the king. It wasn't for them an issue of getting ready. They just thought it was an issue of waiting. If I just wait around, eventually the king will come, and when he sets up his kingdom, we're going to be there. But John's warning him, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not prepared. You must repent. 
And John understood the issue here. He understood about shallow repentance. He understood what non-saving repentance and non-saving religion looked like. He understood what Jesus says later on in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So John wanted to prepare people's hearts. He wanted to show them that unless you make Jesus your king in your heart right now, there is no hope for you. There's just outer darkness for you. If you have any hope of entering into the ultimate outer manifestation of his kingdom, you've got to bow to the king now. This is the forgotten message from the forgotten preacher. This is what no one, it seems, wants to say anymore. That this kind of preparation is necessary. This is the world of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called easy believism. Where people are offered an entrance into a kingdom that they believe is the kingdom of God, but it's an earthly kingdom. It's an earthly religion. It's a shallow repentance. It's a superficial mask for everything that Jesus and the gospel offers. The preparation that has to be made. The highway that you need to prepare. The pathway if you want to get into the kingdom and the, and the roadway for God into your heart. It begins there. It begins with a transformation of your mind, your heart, your will, your affections. Well, much, much more to say about how John prepares people for the kingdom, how you and I prepare people for the kingdom, and we'll get into that in a couple weeks. Father, we're grateful for we're grateful for you and your graciousness when we, every one of us, had no place to go but to be cast into outer darkness. You brought us near. You invited us in. You made a way. For us to be transformed where the barren, dry, desolate places of our heart, the pain and the darkness, the weariness, the grief that fills our hearts like a desert wasteland, you transformed them into springs of water. You planted them with the fruits of joy. You took away our guilt and our shame and you filled us with righteousness and you filled us with hope. Lord, that's just the beginning of your kingdom. How we long to see it in its full manifestation over all the earth. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray for those who are still barren and still dry who are still dark, who are still lost. 
We pray, Father, that their hearts would be prepared, that a highway would be made for you to enter in. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.